Hello, OCC family. My name is Ryan Ross, and I am one of the congregation members here. And stepping in to uh, take over for Craig this week so he can get some rest time in. Uh, today we're continuing our sermon series on Pray First, and today we're going to be looking at the prayer life of a king by the name of Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament. So uh, to kind of give a little story, uh, Jehoshaphat's life is recorded in five chapters over two books of the Bible, and We'll not be reading through the entirety of his life and acts. Uh, we're going to be focusing today mostly on his prayer life. How did he pray? When did he pray? What was his heart motivation for praying at different points in his life? Now, this text is rich with multiple life applications, looking at uh, promoting God through personal leadership, wrestling with the idea of, am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Am I doing enough? So I encourage you to go back and read through this passage yourself when you have time. Uh, today, we're going to be looking specifically at Second uh, Chronicles chapters 17 through 20 and 1 Kings 22. Now, to give a little backstory before we get into this, uh, we want to look look and understand where we're at in the story of uh, the Bible. So we're going to start right back at the beginning with the story of creation. So uh, God created the world and everything was good until it wasn't. And then we had the flood come through. Um, there was a famine which led everyone into Egypt, into exile. Um, we know the story of the exodus from Egypt and Moses bringing the people out of Egypt back to the promised land. And when they get back into the promised land, we have a time and era of judges. Uh, so Moses received the law from God, and he gave it to the people. And the people were to self-govern themselves and follow these laws. And the judges were available to help settle disputes between people. Uh, but the people didn't like it, and they requested God for a king to decide for them and to help lead them. So then we see the era of kings come into play. So we start with King Saul, who starts off okay and then starts to struggle. Uh, we then see King David come in second. Uh, David was a man beloved by God and the people, and uh, he does well for a time until he has his encounter and sin with Bathsheba, uh, resulting in family conflict and chaos that kind of ripples through the rest of this Old Testament story. Uh, David hands off his king, uh, kingship over to his son Solomon, who is one of the wisest men that we know in the Old Testament. Um, but Solomon starts to bring in different cultures, and he starts intermarrying and bringing in uh, other, uh, other ideas into uh, this kingdom. And so after Solomon, we see that the, the state of Israel is at this point of we have our old laws, we have our new other cultures, and there ends up being a civil war in the nation. And we go into an era that's known as the divided kingdom. So one group of Israelites decided that the government was too oppressive with all of its Levitical rules and wanted to expand to include these other cultures and peoples. And then there was another group who wanted to continue to follow the Levitical laws and would struggle with this era of greater legalistic rule. So we have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom that ends up happening. 
And at our point in the story, we're about five generations after the Civil War. So we have history recorded from both sides. So the books in the Bible of First and Second Kings really outlines the story of the kings in the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. And the books of First and Second Chronicles focus mainly on the kings of the southern kingdom, uh, that of the kingdom of Judah. And the two big characters that we're going to have for this, this time and this story for today are King Jehoshaphat, who's the king of the south, and King Ahab, who is in the north. So kind of with that, we're, we're at this point of uh, years of turmoil and wrestling, and now we have uh, King Jehoshaphat coming onto the scene. So looking at Second Chronicles chapter 17, we first get introduced to who is this man? Who is this king, Jehoshaphat? Now, one of the biggest standout points for Jehoshaphat is that he is one of the more God-honoring kings of Judah. Uh, he, is one of the, he is compared to being one of the greatest since David in honoring God and seeking God out. Uh, one, some of his big accomplishments that are noted in this chapter are he removes the temples of false gods of Baal and Asherah from the land. He develops the infrastructure for schools in the nation and sets up essentially Bible colleges, uh, traveling Levite priests who went from town to town teaching the people of the law of God again and teaching uh, the Torah, which is the Old Testament Bible. He reinstated the Levite judges to present God's law and justice in all the different districts of the southern kingdom. And he built this national army. He was so beloved that he, he put a call out to people to serve in the royal army, and he gathered masses from his nation. Uh, it says uh, his total army ends up adding up to about one and a half million soldiers, which is a huge army for such a small, small country. Because of all this, uh, his his enemies start to see and respect the, the small kingdom of Judah, and they engage in a bunch of peace treaties with him. So there is a time of peace and prosperity under King Jehoshaphat's rule. But focusing in on his prayer life specifically, in chapter 17, we really get this insight into who this man was and what his relationship with God was like. So in Second Chronicles chapter 17, starting with verse 3, uh, we see this description. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed in the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult with the Baals, but sought God his father and followed his commandments rather than the practices of Israel. His heart was devoted always to the Lord. Now, that is very interesting phrasing. Uh, the idea that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat would have rung something deep and true to the Israelites at this time. Uh, to be with God and to be with the Lord would have reminded them of a time when Adam was with God in the garden. They would walk side by side together and be in the living presence of God. So that was something to describe that Jehoshaphat was really close with God, uh, which comes from a time of intimacy and in prayer. Because of this, because Jehoshaphat was so immersed in the presence of God, in verse 10 it talks about the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms and lands surrounding Judah, and they did not go to war against Jehoshaphat. Other nations, other countries, other peoples could see that 
Jehoshaphat was such a man of God and was so close to God and the favor of God was upon him that they, they revered him and feared him. And it even goes on to say that they, they so admired him, they paid him tributes uh, to, to remain at peace and to be in good favor with God. So this, this great and uh, holy man who sought God and walked with God uh, is our character of focus for today. And the story goes on. This is the introduction to who Jehoshaphat is. So in Second Chronicles chapter 18, we add another character to the story. Uh, this is his counterpart in the north. We see King Ahab come into the story. So Ahab was, again, the king of the north, and he is a stark contrast to Jehoshaphat. Uh, the Bible describes Ahab as, of all people in history, none did more evil in the sight of God than Ahab. He and his wife Jezebel are referenced throughout all of Scripture from this point forward, all the way to the book of Revelation. It's almost the evil incarnate presence of here on earth. Um, Jesus talked about them, comparing the demons to Jezebel. In Revelation, they talk about Ahab and Jezebel in talking about the Antichrist coming back to earth. Like, this is one of the most evil men that uh, Scripture has seen. What made him so evil? He brought in pagan worship into uh, into the temple. He went out and he slaughtered all the priests and prophets in Israel. Uh, the only one that was spared was Elijah because he, he was hiding in a cave. And uh, Pastor Craig is going to pick this up in a few weeks for us and, and share a little bit more about that story. Um, so we have Jehoshaphat, one of the more revered God-honoring kings, and on the other side, we have Ahab, one of the most evil men in history, side by side, ruling different parts of the nation of Israel. So how do these two interact? Well, we'll, we'll read some of this story in Second Chronicles 18. Uh, so starting at the first verse, Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. After some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab slaughtered an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people that were there with him. And he induced of him to go up against Ramoth Gilead. King Ahab of Israel said to King Jehoshaphat of Judah, Will you go with me to Ramoth Gilead? He asked him. And Jehoshaphat answered, I am with you. My people are your people. We will be with you in the war. And then Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, we should first inquire of the Lord. I'm going to pause for a bit in this story just to, just to reflect. So Jehoshaphat, this God-honoring king, makes an alliance with King Ahab, one of the most evil kings in history. And we don't have time to go into that today, but there is a lot to unpack there. Uh, focusing specifically on his prayer life, Jehoshaphat agrees to this alliance, he agrees to make a plan for war, and then he has this idea, oh, you know what, we should ask God first. We're going to dig into this a bit more, but let's keep the story going to see how it unfolds. So continuing on in verse 5, then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 of them, and said to them, shall we go up to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said to him, Go up, for God will give it to the hand of the king. 
Jehoshaphat said in return, Is there no other prophet of the Lord here of whom we may inquire? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one who we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies anything favorable about me, but only disaster. And the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Quickly, bring me Micaiah, son of Imlah. I'm going to pause again just to to understand how this story is unfolding. So Jehoshaphat says, you know what, wait, let's, we started this plan. We should probably pray and ask God. Uh, so the prophets gather together. They say, yes, go forth. And Jehoshaphat's discernment's a little bit on. He's, he's picking up these, these prophets aren't quite accurate. Something's off. Um, it's almost as if Jehoshaphat knows what the answer to the question is. But in the meantime, uh, the officers are going out looking for Micaiah. Um, this was in a time, of course, where we didn't have phones or emails. They had to go door to door searching the countryside for Micaiah, asking, have you seen him? Where is he? Um, so while the officers are out looking, uh, the story goes on to that Jehoshaphat and Ahab start crafting, uh, crafting and preparing for the war. So it talks about they're crafting new armor for the kings, and the prophets are praying blessing over them. With this sword, you shall cut down your enemy. With this helmet, you shall uh, beat down the, the opposer. And eventually, it comes to the point where they find Micaiah. So picking up again, uh, chapter 18, verse 14. When he, that is Micaiah, had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramas Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And he answered them, Go up and triumph, and they will be given into your hand. But the king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah said, I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains, like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, They have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, See, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy anything favorable about me, but only disaster? And then the king of Israel ordered, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city of Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him on reduced rations of bread and water until I return in peace. Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, people, all of you, hear the words that I say. So pausing again in our story, the kings know what should be done at this point. They, they have heard from the 400. Jehoshaphat has said, something's not right. They hear from Micaiah who says, you shouldn't go. And yet they disregard the word. And they continue on with their plans for war. Now for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize this next half of the chapter. The kings go off to battle. It's one of these epic battle scenes, like if you've ever seen the movie like Braveheart or uh, something of that nature. So we have Jehoshaphat with his army of almost one and a half million, and we have Ahab's army of about 10,000, and they go off to battle against this city. Needless to say, it goes horrible for them. The army is lost and scattered. Ahab is killed by a quote-unquote stray arrow that finds an impossible chink in his armor, 
strikes him essentially in the armpit, and he bleeds to death within the hour. And Jehoshaphat retreats from the battle in fear and disgrace with his army torn to pieces. Every man sent home uh, in full fear retreat. So what does all of this episode have to do with developing a prayer life? A few points that I want to bring out on this. Um, First, Jehoshaphat does not pray first. Much like the encouragement of our, our sermon series, pray first. Jehoshaphat does not. He comes forward. He makes this alliance with Ahab. He agrees to the plans of war. And then he has the idea, oh, maybe we should ask God first. So how many times have we done that ourselves? We've made plans. We've gotten into the details. We've gone down the road. Uh, we've had the dinner parties because they have a dinner party together. And then we realize, oh, you know what? Maybe I should wait and ask and see what God thinks of my plans. I think they're good plans, but let's see if God will bless them. God, will you bless my plans? So that is his first error in all of this story. The second is, when it comes time to ask God, will you bless my plans? Jehoshaphat does not do it himself, a man who walks with God. Instead, he puts his prayer off onto others. And he asks, who can we inquire to pray for us? Who can, who can pray for us? So the 400 priests and prophets are asked to seek out what God would want. And Je- again, Jehoshaphat, this man who walked with God, did not seek him out. And it's not that he didn't have time or chance to uh, he turned it over and asked others to pray for him. Now, quick point of clarification. There's nothing wrong with asking others to pray with you and for you. That is not the point that I'm trying to make here. Uh, It is actually encouraged and commanded throughout Scripture that we should pray with one another and ask others to pray for us. Galatians 6.2 says to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Proverbs twenty seven seventeen says, As iron sharpens iron, so one can sharpen another. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 says that two are better than one, for if one should fall, who will lift the other up? And James five sixteen says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, for the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. No, the issue here with Jehoshaphat was he was asking somebody else to pray for him, in a sense of seeking out justification. This is a heart matter for Jehoshaphat. It's almost as if he, he seems to know the answer, but he doesn't want to ask God himself. So I'll ask others to pray for me. And we know that he knows what the answer is. In verse 6, he says, Is there no other prophet of the Lord of who we may inquire of? We have 400 people saying, telling him what to do. He's like, nope, I know that's not it. He goes along with Ahab when Micaiah comes in and tells him, go forward and go do. And they're like, no, that's not the truth either. They had time while they were crafting armor. They had time preparing for war. This isn't an overnight adventure to go into. He had time to ask, and he did not. And the thing that stands out about this, which I think we do often, is that when the truth comes out, we can quickly write the response off from another person. So in this scenario, they ask the prophets, and Jehoshaphat's response is, 
their discernment isn't right. Is there somebody else we can ask? I don't like what they're saying. Micaiah comes in and says, don't do it. And the response is, see, he never says anything good about me. And Jehoshaphat goes along with this. In psychology, uh, my field of study, we call this a confirmation bias. When we internally feel conflicted or stressed, we look for what agrees with what we want to believe, not necessarily what is true. So Jehoshaphat has started on this path of forming an alliance and planning for war, and now he's trying to he's starting to realize, oh, I didn't ask God, can I somehow justify this? And in all of this, he he it's almost like he knows what the answer is, but he's not willing to listen to it because he's already committed in his heart, this is the plan that I'm going down. Now, this confirmation bias is part of the human condition. Uh, Paul speaks about it to Timothy. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3, he encourages young Timothy, there will be a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them great number of teachers to say what their ears want them to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth to turn aside to miss. When we ask others to pray for us and we don't like what it is they have to say to us, it's easier for us to write it off. Well, that's just your opinion. That's just what you think. That's not how I feel. And that's part of the scenario that we're kind of seeing here with Jehoshaphat. I won't pray myself. I'll ask somebody else. And now I'll put it off on, well, that's you. That's not me. If we have already committed to a plan in our heart, Asking prayers that God would bless our plan is not the right prayer. And this is Jehoshaphat's error. So from this episode, as we look at how we develop a prayer life and how we can learn to pray, two two standout points. One, seek God first. Pray first. With our big and small choices, with our encounters throughout the day, the encouragement is to pray without ceasing. How can we encounter and walk through our day seeking out what God would like? How do we walk with God in our prayer life? The other is when asking others to pray for you, can you seriously consider, are you seeking the truth or are you seeking comfort? So again, from this chapter, are we seeking God first? And when we're asking others to pray for us, are we seriously considering and seeking the truth, or are we seeking comfort? Now, if you read the same account of Jehoshaphat's life in the book of 1 Kings, the story ends here. Bleak and without hope, Jehoshaphat and Ahab, their army is destroyed, Ahab's killed, Jehoshaphat goes home in disgrace, and First Kings account ends with, and then Jehoshaphat dies. End of chapter, end of the book of First Kings, the story is done. However, the account in Second Chronicles continues the story on and gives us the next phase, because the story is not done there. So Second Chronicles, chapter 19, starting with the first verse. Then King Jehoshaphat of Judah returned to the safety of his house in Jerusalem, And Jehu, the son of Hanai, the seer, went out to meet him and said to Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. 
Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asherah poles out of the land, and you have set your heart to seek God. So stepping back to reflect on this, Jehoshaphat returns from this disgraceful war defeat, and his friend and accountability partner, a trusted uh, fellow, comes to meet him with an honest conviction. What did you do? You went out, you made this alliance, you did what? What did you do? It's an honest conviction. He calls him out. You messed up big time. God's wrath is against you. You really messed up. But the thing about this conviction is that there is hope. He speaks a redemptive truth. You may have made a bad choice, but there is still good in you. And you have set your heart to seek God. I'm going to pause a bit just to to draw a distinction between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is a statement of what you did was wrong. Condemnation is who you are as a person is wrong. Conviction seeks to point us to the truth and towards growth, where condemnation seeks to bring blame, shame, and guilt upon us. And Jehoshaphat's friend Jehu here is bringing a conviction. What you did was wrong, but who you are is somebody who seeks God. And in that, there is a redemptive nature to who who we can be in spite of our, our failure. So even if we pray poorly, there is still a chance for redemption. In Romans 12, 1, great verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We fall short all the time in our actions, in our prayers, and whatever it is. But what we did may be wrong, but who we are are believers in Christ. And because we have set our heart on Christ, there is a chance for redemption, a redemptive hope. So continuing on with Jehoshaphat's story for, for us to see how this plays out, Second Chronicles 19, the rest of it, outlines the natural consequences of the behavioral choice that Jehoshaphat made and how he seeks to redeem who he is. He brings back his heart of God, the man who walked with God. And despite the fact that he has lost all of his power and his army, he has lost the respect of his people for making this alliance with the wicked king. He's lost all respect from his neighbors and the nations around him. He is seeking to redeem himself. He's bringing back uh, his heart. He goes back uh, and reinstates the temple, reinstates uh, the teaching of Torah. He makes changes within Jerusalem to rebuild. But in this path of rebuilding, as it always seems to happen, whenever we're trying to make amends with a past sin, there seems to always be that looming sense of personal attack. You messed up and you should pay for it. That's often the voice that goes on in our heads. And so this goes on for Jehoshaphat as well into Second Chronicles chapter 20. So as he's rebuilding, he's regaining the trust of his people and uh, reestablishing uh, his godly character, the neighboring nations that used to fear and respect Jehoshaphat because he walked with God have now heard of his loss and disgrace. So they've allied together, and they've surrounded Jerusalem 
with three large armies, and they're planning to destroy the city and take it captive. So the scouts come and report this to King Jehoshaphat. And his response is much different this time. So in chapter 20, starting with the second verse, messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from all around us. And Jehoshaphat was afraid. He set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the towns of Judah they came. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem and in the house of the Lord before the court. And he said, O Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? In your hand are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Did you not, O God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? They have lived in it, and in it they have built you a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and we cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear and save See now the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. They reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you have given us. O our God, will you not execute judgment upon them? For we are powerless against this multitude that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. This prayer, this approach is so much different than before. This prayer is not an afterthought, much like the previous episode we looked at. There is a situation coming, and Jehoshaphat quickly seeks to bring the people together to a time of prayer. He could have gathered the army. He could have panicked. He could have fled. But he said, no, let's gather everyone, and let's pray. And what's very fascinating about this prayer is that this prayer follows a very similar structure to that of the Lord's Prayer, the model and the framing, uh, much like we looked at a few weeks ago when Pastor Craig walked us through it. So in pulling out Craig's notes from a few weeks ago, I'm going to walk us through this just very quickly, just to show how the structure of the Lord's Prayer can show up in our personal lives. So point one, connect with God relationally. When we looked at this in the Lord's Prayer, the phrasing is, Our Father who art in heaven. In verse 6 of chapter 20, Jehoshaphat starts his prayer, O Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Point two of the structure, worship his name. In the Lord's Prayer, the phrasing is, Holy is your name or hallowed is your name. Again, in the latter half of verse 6, Do you not rule over the kingdoms of nations? In your hands are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Jehoshaphat is worshiping and glorifying this great and powerful God. Point three to the structure, pray his agenda first. In the Lord's Prayer, we hear, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. In Jehoshaphat, he prays verses through seven through nine. Uh, 
God, did you not drive out the inhabitants? Did you not give this land to Abraham? Did you not give it to us? Did you not promise that you would protect us from disaster, from judgment, from pestilence, from famine? Did you not do this? And did you not want this for us, to have this land as an inheritance? So he prays back, God, this is your kingdom. This is your will. This is your desire for us to remain your people, to stand firm and to have this land. And then to point forward to this model, we depend on him for everything. Similar to the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Jehoshaphat seeks dependence on God. God, you, God, we are powerless against this multitude. We do not know what to do. Our eyes are upon you. We have nothing to give, nothing to offer. Everything is on you. You have this. You have us. We are depending fully and completely on you at this point. So hundreds of years before the Lord's Prayer was given, that model is still alive in the hearts of a praying believer. And to kind of echo what Craig brought forward weeks ago, the Lord's Prayer model, it can still be active and alive in our life. So the outcome of this, they pray, the whole city prays, And God answers this prayer through a prophet. And he tells them to take heart, for God is with them. Jehoshaphat follows this conviction. He agrees with it, and he leads a small army of about 300 men to the top of a hill as they're led by God. And they're singing praises and singing prayers all the way out there. Uh, The Lord is faithful. His steadfast love endures forever. A classic psalm written by David. They're, They're singing this prayer as they go out to the battlefield. And they're led to the top of a hill, and they stand there, and they wait. Eventually what happens is these three armies that are coming to attack Jerusalem, they see each other across the field and they say, there are the Israelites. And in their confusion, they mistake the other army for the Israelites. And the three armies attack each other and they kill each other off while the the 300 stand on top of a hill just watching down. And the scene ends that the fear of the Lord falls back on the land. The people rejoice And it says, the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, and God gave them rest all around. So we see this transition. Man who walked with God, who then had a period of life where he made a plan, went forward, and forgot to seek God. Tried to justify it. It didn't go well. He was convicted called out that what he did was wrong, and even though in his heart he still sought God, he turned around, rebuilt his faith, rebuilt his people, and when struggle came, he sought God first. He prayed first. Take home truth to the life of Jehoshaphat and his prayer life is that we ourselves may not always pray as we ought, but there is still hope for us in redeeming our prayer life. Maybe we don't pray enough. Maybe we pray more as an afterthought or the fire extinguisher example that Craig gave us many weeks ago. The encouragement is this. Do not be condemned. You are not a bad person or a bad Christian because your prayer life might be off. But do listen 
to words of conviction and encouragement to grow. Continue to seek God. Continue to seek him out in prayer first. Right before Israel's civil war and this divided kingdom started, God spoke a promise to Solomon that I will leave you with. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, God, God tells Solomon as he's rededicating the temple, trials are going to come. It's going to get hard. It's going to get ugly. We're going to fall away. You're going to come back. But here's the promise he gives. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And that is the encouragement that I leave you with today. Amen.